welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Welcome to the TSRA podcast series. My name is Danielle Smith and I am currently in my last year of the Integrated Thoracic Residency Program at Northwestern. Today I have with me Dr. Jim Cox, former Chief of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Washington University in St. Louis and also former Chair of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Georgetown University. As you know, Dr. Cox developed the Mays procedure in 1987, a procedure used widely today. We will cover pre-op workup, interoperative approach, and post-op management for patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing the Mays procedure. Dr. Cox, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for asking me, Danielle. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, So in today's case scenario, we will discuss a 65-year-old woman who has had persistent atrial fibrillation for the past two years. She's come in to see a cardiac surgeon for severe symptomatic mitral regurgitation. She's had a transthoracic echo, and that shows severe MR and an isolated P2 prolapse. She also had a left heart cath that showed no obstructive CAD. Um, In considering a concomitant maze procedure in this patient, is there anything you would do further in your workup? Well, first of all, if she's had persistent AF for two years, that means she's technically classified as having long-standing persistent AF, and that's the most difficult AF to treat. It's one that's been uh, uh, very difficult to treat with catheter ablation and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, fortunately, if you do the correct operation uh, and for the AF, uh, its response to treatment is the same as if it were paroxysmal or something uh, simpler than that. The uh, transthoracic echo shows an isolated P2 prolapse. You probably know there are several ways of taking care of that off-pump now, and so I suspect that in the future, um, some of those chordal attachments and so forth that can be inserted through the ventricular apex uh, off-bypass and so on uh, would be utilized in a patient like this, and uh, maybe the atrial fibrillation would be ignored. But under the circumstances, uh, we're assuming we're going to do an operation on this patient, and I assume that she's had uh, some failed uh, catheter ablation attempts, too, uh, because we never see a virgin atrium anymore. Um, I think that the uh, fact that we cannot check the status of her sinus node is the critical thing here. If you can check the status of their sinus node function preoperatively, then you can absolutely tell the patient what the likelihood of a pacemaker is. If they have normal sinus node function pre-op, they won't need a pacemaker post-op. Most people don't understand that. Uh, I don't think it's necessary if it's a clear, <clears throat> excuse me, if it's a clear P2 prolapse to do a TEE in a patient like this. Okay. We're going to have a TEE down at the time of surgery. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're surprised, and if you're surprised that the mitral regurge is a little worse than it than you thought, well, you fix whatever's there. Okay. Uh, in terms of doing an EP arrhythmia study, I, I think that uh, my general approach is that I, I think if you're going to likely do something to the AF, that an EP study is, is good. 
we focused for the last few years on the fact that uh, these triggers that induce atrial fibrillation come from in and around the pulmonary veins. And even when the figures, uh, the triggers no longer have anything to do with it, it's in this patient who has persistent. The fact is that the area in and around the pulmonary veins, the posterior left atrial wall, are, are very important. Mm -hmm. um, the, the problem is that in some patients, let's say you ask this patient, and the patient said, well, I asked this patient if he'd ever had any arrhythmias before. And the patient says, well, yeah, you see, I had arrhythmias when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they sort of went away after a while. That could be a real key because that child may have had uh, something like the WPW syndrome or AV right. node reentry mm -hmm. that wouldn't trigger atrial fibrillation when they're 15 years old, mm -hmm. but would trigger it now. Okay. So all of the triggers aren't automatic foci in the pulmonary veins. You know, there are other arrhythmias that can that can play into this, in which case, if you treat that other arrhythmia, the atrial fib usually goes away. Okay. So I, I do think that when possible, they should have an EP study pre-op. If you think you're going to do something to their AFib, it's not absolutely essential, but uh, for example, if the patient has uh, a lot of debilitation from the MR or has a lot of comorbidities or renal mm -hmm. failure or something like that, then I wouldn't bother with it. Okay. And uh, is there any reason not to do a maze procedure in this patient? Not not the way you've presented this patient. Mm -hmm. And and it's a good question because I think that uh, with the STS guidelines being what they are now and, and uh, you know, level 1A and so on, that's fundamentally changed the, uh, that's fundamentally changed the idea that you need to look for a reason to perform the maze. Mm -hmm. now or, or some type of procedure now you need a compelling reason not to do it okay uh, because that's considered to be the standard of treatment now it's evidence-based every uh, major organization in the world recommends mm -hmm. that you do something about the concomitant surgery and so uh, the concomitant AF so yeah I think you'd need a compelling reason not to do it okay great point so moving on to the operative technique can we discuss some of the technical steps some re relevant anatomy and how you would approach adding a maze to a mitral valve repair in this patient? Uh, yes, I can tell you how I would do it. The, the, um, I'll leave the right-sided lesions to the last. And uh, one of the reasons a lot of people don't do the right-sided lesions is because they think it adds extra time mm -hmm. and or it causes an increased need for pacemakers. And neither one of those is correct. Mm -hmm. um, so the way I would do this procedure is I would, uh, uh, you're talking about doing it through a median sternotomy? Or yes. is that most of these things we do through the mentally invasive approach now? We'll assume that we use a median sternotomy in this okay, patient. Okay, so if you use a median sternotomy, then I would uh, open up, uh, uh, heparinize, uh, go on bypass, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, clamp the aorta, open the left atrium through the inner atrial groove, I'd dissect that out before you clamp, open through the inner atrial groove, uh, to expose the left atrium. You should do the maze, the left-sided maze procedure lesions before you do the mitral valve repair. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is one of those important lesions goes, goes down to the mitral annulus, and if you put a ring in, you can't get all the way down. Right. So I would, uh, you know, once you do it and insert a, a lesion to get into to the left atrium, the left atriotomy, I usually take it, 
curve it and take it a little bit further to the left on top and on the superior end and uh, a little bit further to the left on the inferior end so it kind of becomes more like a C. That one gives you a lot better exposure of the mitral valve and two you're halfway around the pulmonary veins. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I've done it for the most part is uh, to put a uh, linear cryoprobe then from each end of those incisions of that incision to <clears throat> encircle the left pulmonary veins and that that means that you put them just beyond the orifices of the pulmonary veins between the pulmonary vein orifices and the left atrial appendage orifice. Mm -hmm. um, you have to, be make, have to make sure it's transmural <clears throat> but you're essentially through at that point. I then put uh, a lesion out <clears throat> from that lesion out into the mm -hmm. left atrial appendage to prevent recurrent, you know, to prevent their re-entry around the appendage. That's not important to do if you're going to take the appendage off. Okay. And if you're doing a median stenotomy nowadays, I would put a lesion out into the atrial appendage, basically between the left superior pulmonary vein and the left atrial appendage, and then put a clip on the outside mm -hmm. of it. And the reason I put a clip on it, I'd either put a clip on it or excise it and close it. If you excise it and close it, there's always a little bleeder coming from the circumflex on the outside over there, so you almost always have to put a stitch in there. Uh, don't go away without looking back there because you'll be taking sure. the patient back a few hours later. Uh, but it's just as effective to uh, put a clip on it if you don't want to take it off. I then put a lesion, a, a, a lesion, a cryo lesion <clears throat> from the uh, uh, well, we're, we're going to put a lesion, what's called a mitral valve lesion, but that needs to be um, associated with a, simul a, 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 a simultaneous or near simultaneous lesion in the coronary sinus. Mm -hmm. I usually put the lesion in the coronary sinus first by passing the cryoprobe behind the left atrium mm -hmm. on the epicardial surface. Take the point of the cryoprobe, put it against the coronary sinus and collapse it and I, I collapse it by pushing up upwards on it. So you can see where you're on the inside of the atrium where you're pushing. As you freeze it, just the tip of it, as you freeze it, you will see an ice ball forming on the inside of the left atrium. Now that means, by definition, you're through the coronary sinus. While that ice ball is there, because as soon as I turn this off, that ice ball is gonna go away. While that ice ball is there, I mark the position with methylene blue. Then finish uh, you know, turn, finish the cryo lesion, turn, turn the cryo probe off, and once the cryo uh, cryo lesion on the, the the ice ball on the inside of the atrium thaws, now you've got a blue dot, and you know exactly where you froze the coronary sinus because it's absolutely critical that you put the mitral line right in line with the site of coronary sinus ablation. Otherwise, the impulse will just duck around it. So I then put a lesion uh, from my encircling lesion of the pulmonary vein. Easiest thing to do is to put it at the lower end of the atriotomy, mm -hmm. take it from there across the blue dot down to the mitral annulus, freeze it, that's it, okay? Mm -hmm. At that point, I repair the mitral valve, whatever's necessary to do to that, usually put a ring in, then uh, de-air, you know, close the atrium de-air and rele release the cross clamp. Now, one of my favorite questions is what do you do then? 
you know, usually you're, I don't know, telling jokes or you're doing something, but you have about 15 minutes that you're going to be rewarming and reperfusing before you take the patient off bypass. Mm -hmm. It's during that 15 minutes that I do the right-sided lesions, which you can do in less time than that. Mm -hmm. I, I like to use cryo. Uh, other people can use clamps. The lesions I just uh, explained to you, except for the mitral, uh, mitral lesion and the coronary lesion, can be done with clamps, mm -hmm. uh, radiofrequency clamps. Um, but I uh, make a small diagonal incision uh, in the right atrium starting about <clears throat> two-thirds of the way down between the SVC and IVC mm -hmm. orifice and make it sort of diagonal a little ways towards the uh, tricuspid uh, valve, at least over towards the AV groove on the right side. <clears throat> Take a curved cryoprobe and extend that with the cryosurgery down to the tricuspid angulus. Take a lesion from the proximal end of your incision, your right atriotomy, up into the SVC. Mm -hmm. You go as lateral as you can. Take one down to the IVC. Now these things are really easily done with uh, radiofrequency clamps because the, you know there's applications about five seconds each or something like that, and you put three or four uh, mm -hmm. uh, separate um, uh, clamping lesions, and then close the atriotomy and finished. So that's how I would do it. Very nice. And then um, what about pacing wires for, for this patient? Would you place atrial pacing wires? <laughs> You've asked the wrong person probably because I've never done any type of cardiac operation in my life. Coronaries, valves, arches, anything mm -hmm. without two, putting two atrial wires and two ventricular wires on. Uh, my mentor, Dr. Savison, used to Tease me that he thought the reason I had I saw atrial fib all the time is because I put those wires on. <laughs> <laughs> I told him it was because I could diagnose it better. But anyhow, I I, uh, I would I know it's not you know uh, it's not the it's not faddish to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But we'll get to a, a, a point later on. I'm sure you ask me in the post-op period where I'll show you why I put, always put those things on. So okay, sounds good. Um, what are some of the potential complications and pitfalls of, of this procedure um, intraoperatively? Phrenic nerve injury, if you're, um, it's almost always the right phrenic nerve. Mm -hmm. It's way more common, <clears throat> or I should say easy to injure when you're doing minimally invasive uh, through the right chest. That's the way I prefer to do it. I've done meetings for nine years, but the, 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 um, the thing you have to be careful of is when you're putting the cryo lesions in the left atrium, the handle of that cryoprobe gets mm -hmm. very cold, mm -hmm. and you have you have a tendency to rest it, or at least you're pushing against the um, right side of the of the pericardium as you open, which is where the right phrenic nerve is. So you've got to be very careful that you protect the right phrenic nerve uh, when you're in immediate during immediate stenotomy. I always just took my finger, index finger and dissected the pericardial reflection off of the IVC mm -hmm. a little bit and then put a little sponge pad in there. The reason for that is that the, the place where the phrenic nerve is closest to anything you're going to be touching is where it uh, mm -hmm. reflects off the IVC at about down towards the diaphragm. <clears throat> so you got to be careful. <coughs> Excuse me particularly of the right phrenic nerve, <clears throat> but also you can theoretically get uh, injure the left phrenic nerve, but 
it's hard to do either with, yeah. with cryo or clamps because unless you go into the orifice and push up into the pulmonary veins, which is the last thing you want to do. So where I've told you to put the cryo lesions and so forth, you should never see phrenic nerve injury, nor should you ever see anything like a, a left atrial to esophageal fistula or anything mm -hmm. like that. Most of those uh, fistulas, which are pretty lethal, have occurred either as a result of catheter ablation mm -hmm. or as a result of heat-based uh, devices that are unipolar that are used in surgery. The bipolar clamp is designed, uh, regardless of which company makes it, it's designed to limit collateral damage. So if you get an atrial esophageal fistula using a bipolar clamp, you need to go back into your anatomy. It's, it's virtually impossible to do. With cryo, um, I've never heard of a case being done, but they've had some with the uh, with catheter ablations with the As a matter of fact, the last thing I read said there have been nine esophageal atrial fistulas in, I believe it was 270,000 patients. Wow. Well, so that's good. very common. Yeah. That's a good thing. All right. So let's say the patient is now recovering in the ICU. Um, what's your expected post-op course right after surgery? And are there any medications you might want to start in this patient uh, once they have recovered from, from surgery, but still in the immediate post-op period? Yeah, I think that uh, we learned early on <clears throat> that one of the uh, immediate uh, complications is the re abnormal retention of fluid. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when we took both the right and left atrial appendages back in the old days, and then we decided real quickly we're not, we're not going to take the right atrial. Because the atrial natriuretic peptide is produced primarily in the left atrial appendage, but also in the right atrial appendage and probably a few other places. So. Um, you're going to see a temporary depression of A&P after the surgery, and so you need to sort of prevent that, you know, or, or at least uh, acknowledge that it can occur. Uh, what I usually did is, is put the patients on a very low uh, uh, Lasix drip. Mm -hmm. uh, it basically eliminates that problem uh, in the first few hours. When they can take POs, I would put them on spironolactone, which mm -hmm. is a direct counteraction agent to the uh, ANP, and uh, it, the problem just went away, so mm -hmm. we don't have the problem anymore. But that's one thing you have to be aware of, is the adverse effects you can get from losing, uh, acutely losing a good volume of the uh, peptide factor. So. Um, the second thing that's almost universal is the presence uh, of a temporary uh, junctional rhythm. Now the reason for that is pretty simple actually. Uh, the, the, you really can't do surgery on the atrium, maybe even on the heart, but certainly on the atrium, without uh, causing some temporary suppression of the rate of firing of the SA node. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of a response to trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's say your SA node is firing at 72 beats a minute. After surgery, it's going to be firing at something like 50 or 60 usually. Okay, You can just expect that for a few hours or even a few days. Um, the other thing you do is 
any left atrial lesions you do, whether they're maze lesions, WPW lesions, uh, whatever lesions you, when you make any significant lesions with any type of device, including a knife, in the left atrium, you are denervating, partially denervating, the vagal fibers to the AV node, AV node. Mm -hmm. Well, what, is that, what do the vagal fibers do? They keep the AV node down. They don't keep the spontaneous firing rate down. Mm -hmm. So when you interrupt them temporarily, the spontaneous firing discharge rate of the AV node mm -hmm. comes up. Mm -hmm. So say it's normally 40, it may come up to 60. Now you're in a situation with an SA node firing at 40 and an AV node firing at 60. Well, the AV node's gonna drive the heart, right? Mm -hmm. That's a junctional rhythm. So that's probably the most common reason that pacemakers are put in to people because in the old days, we came in the hospital for two weeks. Sure. You know, just waited, waited till it went away. Eventually started sending a lot of them home uh, in their sinus rhythm. Uh, I mean, in their junctional rhythm. Uh, nowadays, with the push we, were, we all experience in trying to get patients out of the hospital, you know, as quickly as possible, uh, you're likely to still be in junctional rhythm with a large number of patients. And most surgeons feel uneasy sending patients home in a junctional rhythm. Mm -hmm. Now we're back to the atrial pacing wires. Right. Okay. So if you put atrial and ventricular pacing wires in, mm -hmm. if you have a junctional rhythm, say 50, mm -hmm. and you just don't want to send the patient home with that and so on and so forth, if you have atrial pacing wires, you can pace the atrium. And if that patient conducts from atrium to ventricle through the AV node, then you can pace through the ventricle and if it can, especially if he conducts retrograde from ventricle to atrium, you can absolutely send that patient home and nothing bad's gonna happen because they're gonna come back in three weeks and they're gonna be in sinus rhythm. Mm -hmm. If you put a pacemaker in them, you know, your incidence of pacemaker requirements go up, you expend hospital costs go up, and, and you bring them back in a month and you find you don't need the pacemaker, you turn it off. So it's, I mean, that, those are the options you have, but you will have a fair amount of junctional rhythm after uh, maze procedure and it's um, very you know simple reason why. Mm -hmm. What's the expected um, risk of needing a permanent pacemaker for patients who truly do? Yeah that it? depends on what your uh, what what your distribution of patients is. It's almost totally patient selection based. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know I've read a lot of papers over the years about the maze procedure causing people to need pacemakers <laughs> and it's just not true. Uh, we had in our original series of, I don't know how many patients we had, but, but several hundred. In our original series, we had a, we always checked the, the pacemaker, the sinus node function pre-op in okay. paroxysmal patients. Mm -hmm. The problem with persistent patients is you can't check it pre-op. But in the ones that had paroxysmal, in our group it was 60%, we checked the sinus node function in all of them pre-op. 95% of them had normal sinus node functions. There were, uh, there were 115 of those patients. Not one of them needed a pacemaker. Interesting. After the, and this was a cut and sew and a cryo, mm -hmm. a cut and sew or cryo, maze three. Uh, but 5% of them were shown to have sick sinus syndrome before surgery, even though they didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And we'd tell them, we're gonna get rid of your atrial fib, but you know, you're gonna have a pacemaker. So that's, that's a 5% of Let's say you have 100 patients, it'd be 5% of 60, it'd be three patients with paroxysmal 
out of that 60 are going to need uh, are going to need pacemakers. The real question is what 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 about those people who have long-standing persistent or persistent AFib and you don't know the status of their SNO? Mm -hmm. Well, you just observe and what we observed over the years we always looked our patients up every six months mm -hmm. and what we observed over the years is that every time we put the data together the incidence of pacemaker requirements in those patients would be 20 percent 19 percent 21 percent 20 percent so over the years over the first few years we learned that in those patients who have non-paroxysmal atrial fib 20% of them will need a pacemaker. You don't know which 20% it is. So you tell the patients, look, I, I'll get rid of your atrial fib, but there's a one in five chance you're gonna need a pacemaker. So if you know those three categories, mm -hmm. the paroxysmals who have normals, sinus, no, sinus nodes, pre-op, paroxysmals who have abnormal sinus nodes, pre-op, and the non-paroxysmals, if you know what the distribution of your patients are mm -hmm. in terms of selection, you can absolutely calculate what your incidence of pacemakers is going to be. And there's not a lot you can do about it. Sure. One of the, one of the things that I, I also find sometimes a little bit humorous is that you see a trial, uh, it was a very famous one published a couple of years ago, uh, a trial where one group of patients has, a, you know, let's say a 30% success rate and, and reading the patient of AFib, a non-paroxysmal mm -hmm. AFib. And the other group has an 80%, uh, or say 70%, mm -hmm. believe what it was, 70% incidence. I can tell you without looking at the paper that the ones who have the 70% cure rate are gonna have more pacemakers mm -hmm. because 20% of 70 is more than 20% of 30. So you're going, by definition, you will have more pacemakers the more atrial, the more uh, non-paroxysmal atrial fibrillation you cure, the more pacemakers you're going to see because it's always 20% of them are going are to require pacemakers. Fascinating. Um, as far as long-term uh, results in long-term care, do you routinely discharge patients on any medications like beta blockers or amiodarone? That's really that that's really dependent on who's doing it, what mm -hmm. you did. I think. Uh, you know, we went through a lot of different uh, drugs trying to see if it made any difference on post-operative atrial fibrillation when we were doing cut and sew. It made no difference at all. Okay. Uh, so we stopped giving them any drugs post-op uh, okay. for any rhythmics. The, the reason is that we knew that we knew the lesions were perfect. I mean, you know, they were transmural, you could see it and all that. With the devices that are used today, you can't be sure. You know whether it's cryo or, or, or RF, uh, you can't be 100% sure like you can if you're doing it with a knife. So I think, and, and there's also more uh, inflammatory response I think to these uh, ablated devices than to just making a decision and putting some sutures in it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think when you're using these devices as everybody does now, it's reasonable to put them on something. Mm -hmm. uh, now what what would something be? Well the I think most people would agree that uh, you put them on 200 milligrams of amiodarone a day, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Does it make any difference? Yeah, I think it probably makes some difference. I think it probably helps. It doesn't, at that level, cause you any problems. 
Sometimes people will load them, you know, with mm -hmm. three times that much the first day or something, and then put them on 200. And it's and it's, you know, when amiodarone first became available years ago in the United States, years ago, it's been years forever in Europe. But when it first became legal to use it in the United States years ago, we were very afraid of it because the only place it had been used was in Europe, and they used massive doses of it. We saw every complication you can see from amiodarone. So I sort of grew up being really afraid of it. Uh, now that people give much lower doses and see that it's just as effective, you, you hardly ever see those kinds of thyroid problems and, mm -hmm. and gray faces face and things like that, which are really scary. And uh, pulmonary fibrosis and that sort of thing, you don't see it much. So I think it's reasonable to put them on amiodarone. Mm -hmm. uh, whether you anticoagulate them or not, um, I never anticoagulated any of my patients unless they had my uh, a valve in. Okay. Uh, I I would well there were two I should say there were two groups of people if they had a valve in of course they're going to be permanently anticoagulated but if they had a uh, if if they were someone who had had a stroke preoperatively or someone who had a really thick atrium and I didn't feel like the inside my closure was really smooth or mm -hmm. whatever then I would put them on anticoagulation for six weeks. Mm. Uh, nowadays, uh, I, I think when you're using uh, ablation devices, it's probably reasonable to anticoagulate them for the first few weeks. But uh, unless they have a separate indication for anticoagulation, I would, I would absolutely stop it at, at three months. Uh, you know, the problems with Thromboembolism from atrial fibrillation are primarily left atrium, and if you don't have a left uh, left right. atrial appendage, I mean, and if you don't have a left atrial appendage anymore, then you don't really have to worry about it much. We had one stroke, in 500 patients over 15 years, and so you know, I mean, one thromboembolic stroke, mm -hmm. and that one was a technicality on a finding on an echo. I mean, you just don't have it from atrial fibrillation anymore. So uh, after you've taken that uh, appendage, so. There's some patients you can't take the appendage in, and mm -hmm. we can, that's, another, that's, 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 another that's another topic. topic. But, sure. Yeah. So what do you expect when you see your patient uh, back in the clinic three months later? Uh, well, the first thing I, I expect is that they've been off of antiarrhythmics if they were on it. They've been off for uh, six weeks. Uh, if they haven't, then we take them off and arrhythmics and we take them off of uh, anticoagulants unless there's some other reason to keep them on. And I expect them being a sinus rhythm. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've never personally discharged a patient out of the hospital who was not in sinus rhythm. Uh, and, and so I think if you do it correctly, it works. Mm -hmm. And I've never cardioverted anybody in the hospital. Oh. So I, I think that most of the complications you see from standpoint of needing to cardiovert them and needing to you know, do all these things with their uh, rhythm medications is because it's not a complete operation. Either the lesion pattern is not complete or the ablation device has failed you. Mm. But if you do it correctly uh, and, and uh, uh, you should send everybody home in a sinus rhythm and when they get back in three months they should be in a sinus rhythm. I always tell patients don't pay any attention for 90 days. You got to give me three months. Okay. You can have all kinds of arrhythmias during that time because you've got inflammation, mm -hmm. refractory periods are short enough that you can have atrial fib 
37% of our patients had atrial fib in the immediate post-op or, or shortly thereafter, period. Uh, so the, uh, the fact is that they'll have atrial fibrillation about the same rate that coronaries or, or maybe mm-hmm. aortic valves do. Uh, but you just treat it as, as if it, you had done a coronary bypass on them. Just treat them however you treat them for post-operative atrial fib. Uh, get them off the drugs after six weeks. And I would tell patients, you gotta give me that, don't pay any attention to what happens in the first three months. They always do, of course. Mm-hmm. Don't pay any attention to that. But anything that happens after three months is on me. Okay. okay? And, and, and mm-hmm. if you have anything after three, anything after three months, then that means that we got a problem with the operation. Okay. So it's fairly strict, but mm-hmm. it works. Uh, we always brought our patients back. Of course, these are the first ones done. I think the first 69 patients we brought back and did full-blown electrophysiology studies on them. And the, uh, the EPs did in the lab. They went through the same programmed electrical stimulation protocols, the same burst pacing protocols, and then they started an isoprel infusion and did the same thing over again. And we did not have one patient that could be induced into atrial fib. So after, I remember it was 69 patients because patient number 70 was in the in the in the uh, clinic, and. Uh, my electrophysiologist, who at that time was Bruce Lindsay, who's now at the Cleveland Clinic, Bruce came in. He said, "I'm not going to do these things anymore." And I said, "Why?" He said, "It's a waste of time. Just a waste of time." So we didn't do it after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that if you do it correctly, you expect the patients to be cured. Sometimes they're not, but it's very unusual. There's usually an explanation for it. Great. Well, thanks for going through all of that. Is there anything that we missed? Oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for another uh, conversation. Maybe for another conversation. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Today. Thank you so there much. You okay.